Welcome back to American Billiard Radio. Today is, is an odd day to be releasing an episode. Yes, I understand. Today is Monday, November 9th. Um, I had some technical difficulties on my side, but got everything smoothed out. Uh, this is actually last week's episode, so as far as I can tell, there will be a this week's episode later in the week, but we'll get to that. The focus of this episode is going to be a time in the past that most people have heard about and maybe don't know everything about what happened. We're going to go back to October 10th, 1999. We're going to go to Milwaukee, Camel Pro Tour, Corey Duell, Earl Strickland in the finals. And we're going to talk to both Jerry Forsyth, who was there covering the event, and we're also going to talk to Corey about what happened. We tried to get Earl. He didn't want to talk about Milwaukee. But before we get to Milwaukee, we do have two big stories to fill everybody in on. Anybody who missed the Dennis Orcoyo-Shane Van Boning Challenge match, um, you, you dogged it this time. It It is being looked at as possibly the greatest challenge match of all time. And, and we'll get to whether that's hyperbole or not. But race to 120, hill, hill. And I'll let Dennis describe how the match happened. Well, the first day we, I, uh, we, we play okay, you know, we build each other, how's, how's the games come out, you know. So, you know, uh, he broke so well and, and I broke okay, you know, and the first day uh, I won by three points. And the second day he figured out the break, you know. So he's a master of the breaking, and then he runs a lot of racks every every time. And then the third day, I I move. I was breaking on the left side, and he was breaking on the right side. So I figure out I was down like probably how many games? Fourteen. Maybe he was leading fourteen. I guess yeah. And the, and the second day, yeah, I feel worried about you know the way he broke, and he make position most most likely so so the last day i was thinking oh let me try to move the where he breaking was so you know so and i figure out a little little so and i saw it you know i'm making ball and then i got position most likely so oh i feel like oh this maybe i have chance to come back and come back he did dennis actually came back took the lead at 117 115 they were then tied at 117 each, 118 each, 119 each, and Dennis Broken ran the last rack. Almost scratched coming off the eight ball to the nine ball, but completed the run, ran out the final rack, 120, 119 winner. We had talked to Mike Huang uh, an episode ago about the changes to the break rules and how they were trying to to take Shane's big break out of the game. And Mike had even mentioned that some people thought Dennis might be a better all-around player without that break advantage. I asked Dennis about that. That people say, so I'm not saying that, but uh, people say, yeah, I guess. But I don't know, Shane is great. Uh, it doesn't matter 
uh, he will even have a when he played, when he practiced, when he prepared. Yeah, he does. I think it doesn't matter. But maybe people say about the cubo control. Maybe I may a little bit edge on that part. So maybe. Like I say, social media went crazy. I mean, hill hill after three days. Uh, you know, there was the big Earl Strickland Efren Reyes match. The they called it the Color of Money Challenge. Um, and you know, I was thinking, is this bigger than that? Was that bigger than this? But honestly, isn't it kind of the same thing? Isn't Shane Earl and isn't Dennis Efren? And it's the same thing. It's the top player in America versus the top money player. And at that time, that was Earl and Efren. And now it is Shane and Dennis. So either way, best challenge match of all time. Again, I'll let Dennis give you his thoughts on it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so proud of it, but I'm not really expecting every time I play, you know. Every time I have match, uh, I just, whatever come out, I just, I just play. I just, you know, uh, well, I'm so glad people say like that. But no, I'm not putting my mind like that. It, it happened. You know, it just will happen that kind of match. Oh, well, it's very honor, you know. It's hard to be, uh, to end like one game lead and for the whole, and then the entire match, you know. So that's amazing. That's an amazing match. A lot of people are really fun and, you know, really enjoy to watch us. So. So the other big event was the 47th annual Texas Open. Uh, one pocket event, nine ball event, Round Rock, Texas, Skinny Bob's Billiards. Again, Dennis was involved in the finals for both the nine ball and the one pocket. The one pocket finals came down to Roberto Gomez and Dennis. Another Hill Hill match. And this time Dennis did not come out on top of that Hill Hill match. You know, when you talk to the Filipino players, though, especially when they're talking about fellow Filipino players, you don't hear a whole lot of negative about them. Um, I asked Dennis about, you know, Roberto and, and how Dennis was kind of the favorite going into that match with his experience. And Dennis had nothing but praise for Roberto. Well, Roberto, he played great. Uh, uh, he beat Alex Pagulaya and he beat Tony Chuan. Those matches is uh, double hill, and Roberto he's been in the U.S. for a long time, probably two, two or three years, and uh, never go home, and and uh, he learned a lot of one pocket very recently, and uh, there's no doubt he deserved, you know, to win it, and in the early games he was, yeah, he moved good. I mean, uh and I come back, I almost win it, but he had a good role twice, I guess. But, well, that's part of the game. So, whatever I lost, or, you know, but, uh, Roberto, he did very good. I also had a chance to talk to Roberto about the finals and one pocket and what it is that's helped him learn the game as quickly as he has. Oh, I've been, I've been playing maybe a year. Oh, two years now, maybe two years now. 
yeah, but before that, I was like, um, I'm beating all these uh, great players. Before that, when I start playing one pocket, I'm beating uh, uh, Tony Chohan, the best one pocket American player. Um, um, Evan Lunda, those Josh Roberts, the top players in one pocket in a big uh, live stream match. Then until I played this uh, big tournament and I and I won and in the middle of the finals I'm sick, I'm sick and I I still win. I don't know what happened, but it's just uh, the experience on how I play the rotation can help a lot in one pocket. It's just about the move. Yeah, as long as you understand the move, and you're a threat. Because I'm a, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a world-class uh, rotation player, so I can run. The best move in one pocket is eight and out. That's how it works. <laughs> and as long as I know what they're doing and I know the move, I, I don't move like how they move because they're well-experienced in one pocket. They played it their whole life. But as long as I know what I'm doing and I know what they're doing, and that's it. It's about, you know, cue ball control, you know, you know, uh, Filipino players, we are good in cue ball control. That's why we're easy to learn all the kind of games that they play, you know, like one pocket. Yeah, I love one pocket. It's all mental. It's all strategies. It's all... It's like we're playing chess. One negative after the big event was that a day after the event finished, an employee at Skinny Bob's tested positive for COVID. So immediately players started talking about going into quarantine. Uh, Some of them were, some of them weren't. Roberto had even made a comment that he didn't feel well during the one pocket finals. And according to Roberto, the fans and Dennis were really crucial in in helping him through that final match. In the middle of the match, when I'm in the middle of the match, everybody's helping me, giving me water, giving me hot uh, bottle of water and hot water with a lemon. And Dennis gave me uh, uh, a medicine and I take all of it while playing. <laughs> then I feel fine in the middle of the game. That's why I came back and, and win. And there. Yeah, but, but you know, when I'm playing the uh, the nine ball, there's two events. Uh, when I'm playing the nine ball, I was totally done, totally blocked. I cannot see the ball; it's blurry, and my my runny nose is like like oh, I'm so sick. Then I asked them, "Can we move the finals tomorrow? Because I cannot play today." They said no. All the people they paid to watch the finals now, so we need to continue. So I said, oh, give me 30 minutes. Uh, I'm going to fix myself. And and everybody's helping me, giving me a lot of water. Maybe in the middle of the, the final, I drink maybe like 10 to 12 uh, bottles of uh, water and three cups of uh, hot water and a medicine. And I came back. I asked Dennis about the virus and how he thought it might affect his tournament plans over the next couple of weeks, and it didn't sound to him like it was going to change a whole lot. No, I don't. I mean, you know what, virus, 
think to let's talk about the virus like the past 20 years 30 years they have virus you know they have virus but yes you're taking care of yourself like you know take a lot of vitamins and what are we gonna do our team we just drink ginger tea most every day take uh, orange fruit every day and we're stamina we're good and we're not sick we're okay maybe you know and well virus everywhere so you can catch it wherever you go no matter what you you uh care yourself you know what i mean so we're okay and the same as dennis Roberto didn't seem to be too phased, and it didn't seem to be changing his plans as to how he was going to go about handling his tournament schedule. Yeah, yeah, I'm feeling better. I know I still have a sore throat. I'm scared. Maybe I got the virus. Then I check. Uh, I checked two days ago, and it uh, came out negative. So I'm fine. Uh, the, the test result came out negative, and I posted and telling everybody, hey. Yeah, it's just a cold. Uh, I know it's a sore throat, a cold, because the weather is changing now. So everybody has it too, like like cold. Oh, I'll be safe all the time. I'm Superman. Don't worry. Superman don't get sick. <laughs> so enough with Dennis and Roberto. Uh, we're going to go back to Milwaukee. And honestly, what what gave me the idea to do this was offhandedly looking through some statistics on posts that I make on Facebook and I posted on October 10th that this day in billiards history was when Earl had forfeited in the finals against Corey. The traffic for that post and the the people talking back and forth about it amazed me. I mean, there's still a lot of people who want to talk about that final match in Milwaukee. So before I talked to Corey, I wanted to talk to somebody who was there. That was before my time. So I sat down with my partner in crime, Jerry Forsyth, and he described how he saw it. You know, before we get to Jerry, I, I do want to mention, I had mentioned earlier some technical difficulties, and we had to some technical difficulties with the, the interview with Jerry. I'm not sure what was rubbing on his end of the line, uh, you could hear it, and we weren't able to resolve it. So, like I say, before we get into Jerry talking about Milwaukee, I apologize beforehand. There just wasn't a whole lot that we could do about this little technical glitch that he was experiencing on his end. But with that apology in mind, Jerry Forsyth, let's go back to Milwaukee. Okay, like I mentioned, this is kind of a, a, a special type of, uh, of episode, so I brought in the A-team for this one. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to be joined by my, I realize, you know, you've, you've stepped away from the day-to-day, -day, but you're still always going to be my partner in crime, Jerry Forsyth. Hey, Mike, I appreciate that, buddy. Yeah, what we're going to talk about today, of course, was the Milwaukee nine-ball open. Um, held in 1999 at Romines Billiards in Milwaukee. It was part of the Camel Pro Series. And Romines was one of the favorite places I ever went to. It, it, it was just such a neat pool room. You entered on one end of the building, and the, the room unfolded in front of you with tables on both the left and the right and a long 
bar going down the middle of the room. Um, and one of the things I really remember about Romines was they had the best food in the world. <laughs> they had a chicken sandwich that was to die for. And uh, their French fries were uh, cooked until they were brown. They were just really, really good French fries. <laughs> and so I, I enjoyed myself that week at, uh, at Romines. It was, a, it was really a nice room, nice place. You know, a, a question comes to mind, and this was certainly not um, something that we had talked about in this conversation. But back when the Camel Tour was going on, and, and so many people look back on that time and say, look at all the money that was being added and the major tournaments that we yeah. had. What, roughly what percentage of those tournaments were held in pool rooms? Oh, I'd say about half of them. A lot of them went to uh, convention centers. Uh, convention center in New Orleans, convention center in uh, Cleveland. Um, and the and in Denver as well, it was the convention center. Um, but the convention centers were, were very problematic because uh, there was no effort made, no large effort made by anybody to tell the local people that there, that there was a pool tournament in their town. So I can remember in, um, yeah, I think it was in Cleveland that um, we had a finals in a room that would hold 40,000, 50,000 people. It was a big basketball arena. And there were 44 people in the stands, and most of them were friends and relatives of the players. Well, that can't make the convention center personnel feel real good about all the effort and energy that they've put into it. Well, they got paid for the use of the convention center by R.J. Reynolds. I think what who got unhappy about that was R.J. Reynolds <laughs> and the Pro Tour. They, they wound up in a big argument between the PBT and Camel about whose job it was to put butts in the seats. And nobody did it. You know, I had a conversation with Jeremy Jones a week or so ago, and the idea of a players association came up again in that conversation and he mentioned that with professional golf if they have a tournament that ends on december 31st on january 1st they're already working on how are they going to put fans in the seats a year later how is it possible that we have such a huge number of amateur uh, pool players, you know, APA, BCA, I mean, we could name league abbreviations all day, but we can't fit more than 40, 50 people. And I realize, you know, that was one particular tournament, but I mean, it's the same now. Well, it is. And the thing is, pool players are, are lousy pool fans. They enjoy playing the game, but they don't tend to stick around and watch other people play even when they're the best players in the world. We had amateurs side-by-sides all the time, and amateurs didn't show up except to play. So aside from the, from the low attendance, what was the scene like for professional pool while the Camel Tour was going strong? Oh, we had events every week. You could go to a different pool tournament every week if you wanted to. Uh, the Camel event were like eight or ten a year and there are all kinds of uh, regional events 
Uh, even um, uh, the Lexington All Stars made a made a uh, brief comeback after having been basically put out of business by the PBT because the PBT went to uh, tournaments and said, "This is the way you're going to run it, or we're not going to allow any of our players, who were all the all the top players, to come." And so promoters dropped out by the <laughs> by the bucketful. And because they couldn't make any money with the demands that the PBT was making, and um, they came back when Camel took over Pool, because they knew they weren't going to be strong armed. Uh, unfortunately, it it didn't last because once uh, once the Camel Tour folded up, um, the interest in tournaments folded with it. There wasn't any more publicity. So we're looking at eight to ten tournaments a year. Um, I'm just glancing at the page for the the Milwaukee event that we're discussing here. That was seventy five thousand in prize money. I mean, what was R.J. Reynolds adding to each one of these tournaments? It varied, and but it was a lot of money. Um, I forget how many hundreds of thousands they they committed to this thing every year but it was they they put a bunch of money in it. i mean this was the only sport that the camel brand was sponsoring and they were competing with winston who at that time had the nascar cup and in the nascar cup how many tens of millions of year of, uh, of dollars a year did that cost rj reynolds so the few hundred thousand that went into a pool was just not much money. And this was all done for for advertising, right? I mean, this was all just advertising Camel product. And it got very frustrating because um, some of the players would walk out to, to play their matches and pull a pack of Marlboros out of their pocket and put it on the table, start smoking Marlboros. And, and I remember Larry Kiker even brought in dozens of empty camel boxes. And at the players' meeting, he said, look, we don't care what you smoke out there, but how about putting your cigarettes in a camel box and let that be what people see on the table? And the players ignored him. Is that just like a, a great act of defiance or something? I don't understand. I never could figure it out. It never made any sense to me at all. Now, on the other hand, you know, I've seen some of the uh, some of the photos that were put together, and and you know, I've been going through some old photo galleries, and and they had great photographers back then. Um, but it looked like, I mean, some of the shots were of pool players. Uh, down on a ball with a cigarette hanging out of their mouth. I mean, that. what was the opinion on stuff like that? Well, at the time, you know, smoking wasn't condemned the way it is today. So it 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 really was not much thought went into it uh, or was 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 given to. No, nobody really said anything about that. Um, I don't know when they started banning smoking in pool rooms but it wasn't it wasn't then it, smoking was still very prevalent in pool rooms and i can remember a, a survey done where um in texas 60 percent of uh pool players who played more than twice a week were smokers so it was a great market for camel to go after um 
but it it didn't do them much good. You know, people have never been real loyal to tournament sponsors. Well, and that was going to be my next question. Um, why, and I'm sure you have opinions on this, why do you think there hasn't been another uh, major sponsor that would come along like that? I mean, you know, there was the IPT, but that was a completely different situation. Yeah, that that was totally different. I think the reason why there would be why there may never be another major sponsor is because the players wound up suing the sponsor. We've talked about that briefly on this show. Can you can you give a, a Reader's Digest condensed version of that? Yeah, I was at the trial. I was I had the trial every day. It was held in Greensboro, North Carolina, my old hometown, and um, the players sued uh, Camel for basically, for the PBT sued Camel for basically stealing the series away from the PBT because it became, instead of the PBT tour sponsored by Camel in, what, 98, I guess, uh, they had such a falling out with Don Mackey of the PBT that they just said, uh, we're going to go do our own thing. And so they announced the PBT Pro Series I mean, excuse me, the Camel Pro Series, and sent out invitations to all the PBT members. And the PBT members went to Mackey and said, you don't have any money to give us, and they do, so we're going to go play. And they did. They went and played. Um, But then Mackey filed suit, and the players got behind him and um, went off. And and that was the first lawsuit ever won against a tobacco company in North Carolina. But they only won $600,000. They didn't, it wasn't worth the time of it. It took it. And, and I don't think any player ever saw a penny of that money. So these are the players who left Mackey's organization because he didn't have the money. Well, they didn't leave the organization. They just said, we're going to go play for Camel because the PBT doesn't have any money to hold tournaments with. They they were still members of the PBT. They just got ex, uh, got exemptions to go play for Camel because they didn't have any choice. They had no nothing else to do. And where in the timeline of uh, R.J. Reynolds pulling the plug on the tour did the lawsuit come in? Uh, yeah, it says that R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company's lawsuit with the PBT began on May the third of two thousand uh, in Greensboro. Had R.J. Reynolds pulled the plug by then? Yes. Yeah, it was over in 99. Okay, and and the particular tournament that we're talking about, the infamous Milwaukee incident, that was October 10th, um, 1999. So what exactly happened? we're, We're coming into the final day. We're down to Corey Earl. Mike Coltrane, there's a name we haven't heard in a while, and Kim yeah, Davenport. Yeah, third. Right, yeah. Kim took fourth. Um, well, the, the thing that everybody remembers is the final between Corey and Earl. And Earl had a lot of things going against him that day because Corey was using the soft break, and that really got under Earl's skin. 
Uh, he was yelling at Corey, saying, be a man, hit him like a man. Um, I mean, he got real insulting. And then uh, Scott Smith was the tournament director, and he was having trouble racking the balls. So he was having to go forward of the spot half a ball like we do when we have trouble racking the balls. And Earl said, no, that's no good because uh, you're not doing that for Corey. And I wasn't close enough to the table to be able to make a determination whether that was true or not. And Earl also accused Scott of slanting the rack to one side or the other so that he couldn't make a wing ball. Um, I never, I mean, Earl would say, look at this, look how crooked this is. And I was standing on the other end of the table, of course, out beyond the, the spectator ropes. And I couldn't see that there was any slant to the rack, but it just got crazier and crazier and crazier. And, um, Corey was playing it cool. You know, he, he would ignore, at least this is the way I remember it. We're going to be talking to Corey. We'll get his version of it. And, uh, he wouldn't say anything. He'd just be real quiet and get up and soft break. And uh, I have to say, Earl got every bad role in the book on that soft break. He'd come to the table so many times with not with no shot. <laughs> it was just... And um, he got upset, real upset. And finally, uh, Scott racked the balls, and Earl said, they're loose, they're not touching. And Scott said, yes, they are. And they argued back and forth. And finally, Scott said, <clears throat> break them or unscrew your cue and quit. And that's what Earl did. He left. And, you know, we we have tournament promoters, or are not tournament promoters. We have tournament directors now who, you know, they're, they're well-known names. Scott was a very well-known tournament director. I, I mean, he... Oh, yeah. He'd been interacting with Earl for how long prior to this tournament? Uh, well, for 20 or 30 years. And by this time, Earl had already won the U.S. Open how many times? I uh, believe that that time it was three, maybe four. He was, you know, he'd been a world champion several times, a U.S. Open champion. I mean, he was... Uh, probably the most famous man playing pool at the time. And Corey was, and I don't mean that the wrong way, but this was 1999. I mean, Corey had been around for how long? This was Corey's first as a pro. So yeah, I could see where Earl might have thought he was being disrespected a little bit. Well, yeah, but but he really wasn't at all. I mean, Corey didn't offer any disrespect. He just got up and soft broke the balls because the the balls weren't racking well. And I believe Corey's statement at the time was, why would I just get up and hit the balls as hard as I can and hope for a shot? I don't do that at any other point in the game. Why should I do it on the break? But see, wasn't that the mentality back then that everyone just... You know, it, it was the unpredictability, it was the randomness of the break, but all the pros just did it. You rear back and hit it as hard as you can and hope to squat Whitey in the middle of the table. Wasn't that kind of the, the approach back then? That was the deal. Try to break those balls apart, get them to get far enough away from each other so that you have a shot, and then leave the cue ball in the middle of the table. It was really quite an impressive skill shot when players pulled that off. <clears throat> 
Um, but Corey knew that the odds weren't that great of getting a shot, um, and the odds were maybe better. Uh, in fact, Pat Fleming did the stats on it and, and came up with the stat that uh, the player who breaks is at a disadvantage in nine ball because the person who doesn't break went, wins more games. Pat Fleming, when he was playing pro pool, if he won the lag, he'd give the break away. He didn't want it. So Scott and Earl go back and forth. Earl is finally given the ultimatum by Scott, and he unscrews, and that's it. Earl takes second. And within the next two months, R.J. Reynolds pulls the plug on the tour. I think it was in December they they made the announcement that they were going to pull the plug. And I'll put you on the spot. You know the question's coming. Um, How much of that decision do you think was based on Milwaukee? I think that decision was actually going to happen anyway um, because they weren't getting any results for their money. Uh, Camel sales were not increasing. you walk into pool rooms and, and, you know, there weren't a lot of camel cigarettes around on the tables. Um, it, it, they just, it just wasn't working. And, uh, then the, uh, I'm trying to think when the law changed and said that they couldn't sponsor any sport at all. It may have been around 2000, uh, when that ruling came down that see what before each tobacco company had been each tobacco brand had been restricted to one sport that they could sponsor. They couldn't go out and sponsor everything around the sun like they used to. And Winston picked NASCAR and camel picked pool. Um, actually it wasn't camel that picked pool. It was SMS, which was their publicity firm. Um, uh, I don't remember what SMS stood for, but the guy who ran it was Larry Kiger. And, yeah, they were not a wholly owned um, subsidiary of R.J. Reynolds, but R.J. Reynolds was SMS' only client. Well, we're happy now to welcome Corey Jewell into the conversation. Corey's on the road to Wyoming, but he's taking some time out to uh, give us a talk about the event at Romines back in 1999. Corey, this was your first first year as a pro 1999 wasn't it uh i think so yeah i think it was yeah it was a that was a fun year had you ever used the soft break in a pro tournament before you got to romines I, i've been thinking about that and i'm not i'm not sure i don't think i i don't think i know i was breaking really well at the u.s open yeah but i, I can't remember if I had taken much pace off the break, you know, to consider it real slow. Can't really hundred percent answer it, but I know that I had, I had found some, some keys to my break there at the U.S. Open, and I felt like I was going to win. I, I think I finished fifth, sixth, and I lost a couple breaker matches where I was leading, and then I think I lost Hill Hill or something. Well, I think you, if my memory says you had used it against a couple of people earlier in the week before you got to the finals. Yeah, I definitely used the, the slower break earlier in the week 
I think I, I figured something out in the break at the U.S. Open. I remember when I when I was walking out, I had talked to Shannon Dalton, and I and I was just sick about losing. I was like, man, I really felt like I could have won this one. I said, what kind of odds do you give me? I win the next pro tournament I play in, and he said he'd give me twenty to one odds. So uh, we made a small wager, and uh, and then you know I ended up winning that Romine tournament, uh, but. You know, there was still a little controversy if it was 100% win, you know, since uh, Earl did walk out in the middle of the match. So, yeah. But, uh, I got I got some payment out of him that I was uh, happy with. And uh, that was, it was a great tournament. I, I really enjoyed it. But, uh, yeah, it would have, been, would have been nice to finish it off the right way. Yes, it would have. But um, a win is a win, so... Take them, take them any way you can get them. <laughs> but what I remember about that finals, Corey, and I want you to correct me here as much as you want, was that yeah. Earl Earl went off on you saying things like, come on, hit him like a man, don't get up there and pussy around with the break. And he was getting very upset with you about the break. And he was getting upset with Scott Smith because Scott couldn't get the balls to rack tight. So he was vocal, but I don't think it was like when I was shooting or anything. He might have just been talking to himself a little bit. And I don't think he, like, threatened me at all or anything like that. But the way I remembered it, he was more talking to Scott Smith trying to get Scott. Because Scott Smith was the referee racking the balls for both of them. So it wasn't like a rack-your-own-tournament. I wasn't getting accused of, like, racking the ball weird or anything like that. Right. This was racking for both of us. So, you know, and I I would switch my break up. Like, if I got a good rack, I could hit them easy, you know. But if I didn't get a good rack, I just went ahead and smashed them. But I remembered Earl had just made the nine on the break. Yes. Uh, He might have made it one or two times. And after he made the nine on the break, which was really weird to me, he wanted – he wanted Scott to rack a certain ball throws because I guess if you know if the nine shoots straight in the corner, something must have been off. Right. You know, maybe the rack wasn't completely frozen, so he was trying to get a perfect. We both wanted perfect racks, obviously. You know, but you know, some tables you can only do as good as you can do. And then Scott said, "Well, you know, this is as good as I can do." Right. And then right. that's when Earl wasn't happy with that. I guess. going to re-rack them for you. You can either hit them or you can leave. And he unscrewed and left. 
I mean, I, I don't know about t- the tilting part, but I, I'm not sure about all that. But, yeah, he just uh, it just seemed like Earl just wanted to get a real good wreck, you know, and uh, you can't really knock Scott. I mean, I, I just I just played this tournament last week, and, uh, you know, some tables it's just so hard to wreck the ball strokes. You know, all the yes. balls, with, first of all, to get them all pros, they all have to be the same size. In some pool rooms, you know, the ball's been worn in or, or it's been a long time they've played with the balls. So, yeah. And then if there's, you know, divots in the table or whatever, sometimes it's just too, too difficult to get them all perfect. So, yep. uh, I mean, I played a match. I think it took me about 10 minutes to rack the balls against Jeremy Jones. I, my back started hurting. And, uh, so, yeah, it can get like that. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. He just, he, I think he just, uh, got a little extra bent out of shape about it. You know, he probably should have calmed himself down and came back and tried his best to do, you know. It's, it, it, even if the rack was a little bit bad, he might have made the nine again, you know. I remember I played yeah. in the World Championship with the referee racking the ball, but they, they just kind of sat the same way every time. And we just broke them. And I ended up making the nine on the break, I think, six times on uh, Ernesto Dominguez. So that's, that's a story for you. You should get him on the phone about that. He was not happy. It was like, I think it was 2000. Cardiff, that must have been in, that was in Cardiff, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I made it six times in the set, and five in a row. I made it five in a row. Yeah. He was ahead, I think, three to two, and I I ran the set out making the nine of the break. Oh wow! I'd have a, yeah, I have a nice flight back, uh, you know, fifteen hour flight back after yeah. that. Like you know, you play a good tournament, and then that happens. I don't know. It's different times back then. Like I just played Alex, and he played a good match on me. And we were playing, you know, one spot. It's just the older older rules, winter break. Even though he got out to a decent lead on me, I always knew I had a chance. If I get a shot at the table, I could run a few racks and come back. You know, with the alternate break, you can't really do that. You know, nowadays, the soft break is just a common part of the game. You know, and, and a lot of people look at, and, and there's a question for Corey. You know, a lot of people look at it as this is something that Corey brought to the game. But where did, I mean, back then, nobody thought about a soft break, did they? Well, it's kind of like, I, I use the analogy that, like, when when the player, before, I don't know, maybe 10 years before me, the players used to kick hard at the ball, trying to luck it in. And then effort came along and he kicked safe. Right? They call it a great shot. You know, right. but I look at the break as it's just like any other shot. I mean, you can step up there and try and hit the break as hard as you can, just like you would a kick, try and luck a ball in. Or you can try and have some method to your madness, you know. So I, I, I just look at it as another shot. I'm trying to pocket a ball and get position on the next ball. You know, and then players will make the argument to me. They'll be like, well, that's not the way the game's supposed to be played. And say, well, whoever said how something's supposed to be done, if you get into a math competition, you get the correct answer, you win the competition, correct? 
Yeah. So if you're playing a pool tournament and you get the correct answer, somebody says, well, that ain't the way you're supposed to do it. Well, that's the other guy's opinion on how it's supposed to be done. I mean, snookers played with a safety break, and they make plenty of money. You know, it's not like uh, breaking safes killed snooker or anything. So everybody looks at it a different way. But uh, I, I can agree with the guys The you know, Sometimes you end up with the exact same run out if it's like magic rag, if all the conditions are perfect. But then usually if you lose, it's because you did something wrong. You know, everything's right in front of you. You make a ball. There's less luck involved. When uh, if, if 99% of the people make a ball on the break, then from there on out, the break is meaningless. It's just whoever plays the game better. If you don't want the best breaker to win, right? People are like, oh, well, this guy only breaks because wins because he breaks good. So if you make the break rule real difficult, then the difference between a good breaker and a bad breaker is is more. Yeah. You see, the bad breaker's not gonna make a ball and the good breaker's gonna, you know, have such a big advantage. But if you make the break really easy, then everybody is equal on the break. Now it just game comes down to playing the game, correct? Yeah. I just think most of these people just think backwards on all this stuff. Well, and, and that was my question. I mean, how long back then did you have to work on your own to figure out that hitting the ball soft was a viable way of, of playing at, at absolute top level? I, I don't think I really worked at it. I think it was just hit me one day that, hey, maybe every, maybe everybody's going the wrong direction on the way they're thinking about this game. You know, who's to say, well, actually, when I was really young, maybe 15 years old, I said, I, I, I told one of my coaches, Jimmy Karras, I said, I said, how come you can't just make a ball, the same ball, because he would teach me the combinations. I'd say, isn't there a way just to make a combination out of the stack and just run out every time? Why can't I do that? <laughs> He's like, oh, nobody can do that. <laughs> he told me that when I was 15. And, uh, I think the, the Sardo rack and when they started freezing all the balls, that that's what really made it all possible. Yeah. You get such a consistent rack. I did long for the days before the Sardo rack because until that came along, you players, not many players inspected a rack or asked for a re-rack. they just get up and hit it as hard as they could. Yeah, I think I think the, the racking issues in our sport makes it – like, if I go rack my own balls and the guy comes up and asks me, you know, nitpicks everything about it. Well, if there's a fan up there watching it, it makes me look like a cheater, even though I'm just trying to get a pro. Or vice versa, if the, the, if the opponent racks the balls and I got up there and inspect it and keep telling him it's bad, it just doesn't look good. You know, yeah. and I think it was Gabe Owen. He came up with a rule and I've, I've told a bunch of people this rule and I think it would be fun to play. He said, if you just rack for each other and rack them, you know, rack them how you want, and then the, uh, the incoming player that's getting ready to break, he can look and say, if this is a good rack, I'm going to break, and if it's a bad rack, I'm just going to pass it. So you only have two huh. options. You either break it or you pass it. And I think yeah. that's the way not false. That's a good idea. Because, because now you don't bicker. You just get up and you you know if you don't like the rack just let the other guy hit him 
You know, yeah. I thought it was really, Gabe Owen came up with that, and I thought it was a genius idea. And uh, so I got to give him all the credit for that one. But I've never played a tournament like that, but I think it'd be fun. But they want to put all these band-aids, put it up here until everybody figures it out, and then we'll put it over here, and then we'll make two balls pass the side, then we'll add another ball until they figure that one out. But I still think that those difficult break rules make the better breaker have a bigger advantage on the break. When, you know, back in 99, when you started using the soft break, aside from Earl, what kind of reaction were you getting from opponents? I mean, had they seen this before from you when you were practicing and said, oh, okay, here it is? Or were they just dumbfounded? Well, the reaction, I'll tell you what, the reaction went, like if you, I played before where I think Mika, Mika had to break down real good and, and, and beat me up a couple times. When you're sitting in a chair and it looks like the guy's just going to run out every time they get up, some guys can just sit there with their mouth shut and just take it. But other guys can't. You know? And the guys that yeah. can't, they start squirming and trying to get, you know, calling reps over and whatever, you know, anything. Uh, I, I really think that easy break rules, tight pockets. You know, if you want, if the people are running too many racks, it makes the table hard. I think the easy break rule isn't that bad because it kind of takes, it kind of equals out the break where, you know, it's more about playing the game, I guess. Yeah. Well, you certainly changed the game with that break because now we've got tournaments where three balls have to go past the side pocket or have to go past the head string and uh, people are counting balls going down table. It's, uh, it's gotten rather yeah. complex because of you, Corey. It's too complicated. The fans aren't going to understand all that stuff. I know. You know, when you break and make a ball, I have, I have people come to me all the time, hey, you made a ball on the break, but the other guy got to see. What happened there? You know? And these are yeah. people that don't pull. You know? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. they want you to play eight balls so they can at least try and guess which ball, you know. <laughs> really, I mean, if you got to think about the people, you know, the majority of people, what they would think of pool. Not a, not a top pool player. I think we got to sell the game to, um, for me, I'd sell eight ball, honestly. I, I think nine ball is a fun game, and it's good to have a lot of variety of different games to play, but if I had to take a pro tour, I'd do eight ball. So if they start a uh, a professional eight ball tour, do you have a soft break ready for that? <laughs> I, I've done one, and I and I think I beat John Mora, and it's it's a fun break. It really is. It, I, I mean, <laughs> amateurs would really get a kick out of it. It's just a straight pull. It's just an old straight pull break where you bank the corner ball straight back in the corner, and uh, I had it where all the stripes would come out, but it's not. I started to rethink it. I won the match, right? But I started rethinking. I was like, this is not smart because I, I can only run maybe one one or two racks at a time. And the other guy can, if he gets a hard break going, he might hit me with five or six. You know? so right. Yeah. It's not, it's not a smart. Yeah. You don't want a soft break. It's more of a run out game. Yeah. Corey, we appreciate uh, you going down memory lane with us today. Hey, that was a great tournament. I had a, I had a, I really enjoyed it. We, I, I remember me and Earl and uh, Larry Neville had a had a stroke contest. I think it was on the five by ten in the early in the tournament. I don't know. If, I don't know who won. Earl might have won. 
So I enjoyed the food they had at Romine's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that good bar, stuff. the bar was elevated. You yeah. Know, the table kind of went around the bar. It was a nice room. I think, uh, yeah. actually, Elaine Markell, in that tournament, broke and ran eight racks. And everybody was crowded around the, the table watching him. He yeah, watching him. Florida, Canadian player. Yeah, he was great. He used to watch him pirouette after the break, so they called him the dancing bear. Oh, he was—he was a shooter. He could play. Alex, I can't believe I lose to this guy, but he—I earned yeah. my respect. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks a lot, and have a good time in Wyoming. Okay. All right. You guys have a good one. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. That was Corey and Jerry taking us back to Milwaukee. Um, I think the tournament format that Gabe had mentioned to Corey that Corey described in there where you could take or give the break back would be an interesting concept. Um, I'd love to see a tournament ran that way. That's the show for this week. Um, I do have an interview lined up. Actually, I have two interviews lined up for later this week. We're going to talk to Roy Pastor, who was named the Jerry Brysath Instructor of the Year. And we're also going to talk to Ra Hanna about his big junior event that he announced over the last week. That'll be next week. Again, I appreciate everybody listening this week, which actually was supposed to be last week, but you understand. Thanks for taking your time to listen to the show. And Dave, we are always thinking about you. <laughs>